0: If it wasn't Christmas time, I'd let that go. Uh, good evening to you. Ah, there you are. All right. I thought they had put, like, one of those screens in front of me, and there were fake people out there. I got my Google glasses or whatever. It's like, okay, I put it on. All right, Damien, you're in a congregation, and there are real people there, so go ahead and preach. And that's what's coming, you know. You know, it is. Well, hi. Hi. If you come to hear my complaints tonight, I'm just a little cranky to begin with here. I'm trying to improve on that I know it. Thank you. Now I'm getting a little too much of the audience at this point. I'm just kidding. Listen, um, Isaiah chapter 25 tonight. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, gentlemen are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Wave to them. They'll get a Bible in your hands, and it should be marked to our passage. You'll be fairly lost, I think, on Sunday night without a Bible because we do try to cover some territory and uh, get a Bible from them. And then if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. Also, next Sunday night. We're going to, instead of our, our regular uh, Sunday evening Bible study, we'll have our next night of worship, and it will be a Christmas night of worship, and uh, will be all of the Christmas music, Scripture reading, this beautiful presentation, and uh, a time to celebrate the season, even as we've enjoyed uh, some of that here tonight, the songs that produce such thanksgiving and worship within our heart. And uh, then afterwards, we'll enjoy wonderful refreshments uh, out in the Fellowship Hall. It's a great night not only to come uh, yourself and kind of set the tone for the reason for the season, but also great to invite family members or uh, friends or neighbors or classmates who normally might not come to church for any other reason, but they come to hear some Christmas music or to hear a Christmas presentation. and so. A great opportunity to invite people. And, of course, all of the songs that we're singing are just chock full of doctrine and wonderful things about the Lord and uh, about Jesus. And so they'll hear tremendous truths. We will present the gospel. There are flyers like this out in the fellowship hall that you can pick up and use for the purpose of inviting someone. And then they can have it before them and know what the time and the date is and all and then uh, come on out. So those are out in the fellowship hall for you. In chapter 25 we come to a little bit of a break uh, in terms of a new section making up three chapters of 25, 26, and 27. We remember last week in um, Isaiah chapter 24 that that chapter was a description of God's judgment that was going to come upon, is going to come upon the entire world. And uh, in my Schofield Bible, which is what I teach from because of, the font. Listen, I mean too much information, but anyway, okay. So, but in my Schofield Bible, they listed as uh, Isaiah's uh, little apoc. Apocalypse, and it's describing the desolation of Israel after the Babylonian invasion. That would be a great subtitle for uh, the chapter, except for the fact that it describes a destruction that is going to come upon the whole earth. And in fact, the word earth, as we saw last week, was repeated uh, 16 times in the section. So it is indeed Isaiah's little apocalypse, his little book of Revelation. He kind of encapsulates all of Revelation, uh, chapter 6 through 19 which speaks of the great tribulation period, the judgment that God is going to bring upon the earth um, as a part of his sequence of events in the last days before he ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. And so uh, that judgment is laid out or this glimpse of the great tribulation is laid out. And then in chapter 25, he begins to detail what is known as the kingdom age. So here we sit here tonight, the next event In the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church, where God takes uh, Christians up into heaven. He then uh, begins the great tribulation period, or tribulation period, which is a seven-year period of his judgment upon the earth. At the end of the seven years, Jesus returns with his second coming with us, and uh, he comes to the earth. Heading to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem by way of the Valley of Megiddo. And there is the Battle of Armageddon that occurs. And then upon landing, uh, setting foot upon the Mount of Olives, he then uh, establishes a thousand-year reign upon the earth. And then following that thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth, there's a final rebellion against uh, God, That's put down. And then ultimately there's a white throne judgment and a new heavens and a new earth. And so I mention it. You say, well, I only got about 10% of that. That's fine. Next time you do it, you'll be up to 20%. And understanding the whole progression and it's important to understand uh, all about these things and so here we come to the place now following the great tribulation period Jesus' second coming he establishes the kingdom age the thousand-year reign of christ and um, here's a description three chapter description of that kingdom age oh lord you are my god i will exalt you I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. And so it's going to begin with this praise being lifted up to the Lord. And that kingdom age is going to be all about praise. I trust I'm going to get an even better voice for worshiping him. Uh, With my new body. And here's the reasons for which God is going to be praised in that kingdom age. Jesus is going to be praised. Verse 2: Four, that's a reason word, isn't it? For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt, and therefore the strong people will glorify you. The men of the terrible nations will fear you. And so Isaiah speaks of the entire earth in the sense of a city that's been destroyed, that's been judged, and the whole world will be judged during the tribulation uh, period. And uh, there will be this praise lifted to God, up to the Lord uh, for uh, the judgment that he pours out during the Great Tribulation period because it's going to bring a uh, very significant, if almost completely, uh, end of open rebellion against God and wickedness and this kind of thing. So immediately as we go into the kingdom age, Jesus establishes his kingdom. People are going to have a sense, this is a new place. And you've put down all of man's rebellion, all wickedness, and there'll be great praise lifted up to the Lord for that. Another reason for the praise, verse 4, first word is the word for. That's another reason, word, for you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. And so here there will be praise offered up to the Lord for his protection. Of a remnant of righteous people who survived the Great Tribulation. Following the rapture of the church, there'll be a lot of people that will get saved after the rapture. And uh, we've mentioned it before, but there'll be people that you witness to, and then all of a sudden all these Christians are gone, including you, and you say, Hey, if you ever see and I'm gone in an instant, don't believe the UFO story. Jesus came and got me, and my Bible is located on my desk. Here's a key to the place. And give your life to the Lord. So lights are going to go on for people, people that have been going to church all their life but not born again, this kind of stuff. And, and so many people will come to know the Lord. A Jewish remnant will come to know the Lord during the Great Tribulation period after they are fooled and they're self-deceived into believing that the Antichrist is indeed their Messiah. Uh, and, and then he will do what is called the abomination that causes desolation. Halfway point of the great tri- uh, the tribulation period, where he allows them to rebuild their temple again. He goes in and he declares himself to be God, demands to be worshipped as God, and the Jews realize, uh oh, this is not the Messiah, that they've been duped, and they then flee for their lives toward ancient Edom and ancient Moab, uh, to the area of the rock city of Petra, where God will then protect them. The light will go on. They'll realize Jesus is the Messiah. They will then be protected through the Great Tribulation period. Many Christians will die for their faith because they won't take the mark of the beast on their right hand or forehead during that uh, period. That will be required in order to buy and sell. It will immediately expose you as a Christian. Many will be martyred as a result of that. But many will survive the Great Tribulation period. And here is praise that is offered by those saints for the how the lord protected them through uh, all of the difficulty of that period a He says there in verse four from the storm a shade from the heat and we remember some of those plagues that come upon the earth in terms of the seal judgments and the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments and the heat and the sun and the, these kind of things and God will have protected that remnant. And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees of fat things full of marrow, that's called beef and lamb and whatever of well-refined wines on the lees. And so here's a praise to the Lord for all of the good things uh, that are going the things that are going to be plentiful during the kingdom age. And it's certainly going to be food, feasting, all the money that's used on wars and all of the fighting crime and all these things that building weapons today. None of those things will be needed during that age, and there'll be plenty. And so you can imagine, too, coming out of the Great Tribulation period, this will be something that's worse than any war that anybody's ever been through. And if you ever read anything on military history or, say, uh, the... A population of Europe after World War II. Uh, Food, 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 food. That's all that you could think about. And where can we get food enough to sustain ourselves? Because there was such a shortage of food because of the war. So they're going to come out of something that's worse than a war. And the only thing that during that three-and-a-half-year period, the last part of the tribulation period, that they're going to think about more than God is food. And the Lord is going to provide food and a wonderful feast to uh, to his people. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all of the nations. And so during the kingdom age, there is going to be this uh, destroy, destroying of the spiritual blindness that spread over the nations, as I, Isaiah describes it. There won't be any spiritual ignorance during the kingdom age. Remember that during that thousand-year period, Satan is going to be bound up completely. And so it's going to be a season of unhindered in the world, spiritual clarity for people, uh, no spiritual warfare. Unhindered spiritual absorption of the truth of God, and uh, there'll be no resistance at all for spiritual growth and spiritual understanding in either the Jew or the Gentile. And we know today from the New Testament that concerning the Jews, related to Jesus as their Messiah, Paul declares that there's a veil over their eyes. And he speaks of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, For until this day, the same veil Remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. For even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So the Jew has no reason for not believing in Christ, but he does have to work through uh, this kind of a veil issue. There's a way in which the enemy, Satan, attacks them and keeping them to come from Christ. There will be none of that during uh, the millennial reign. They will clearly recognize Jesus as their Messiah. There's also a bit of a veil that affects Gentiles who are alive today. Paul writes about that again in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. So the God of this age, Satan, comes in and he resists. There's a spiritual resistance to a person coming to know Christ. And Satan isn't out to uh, ruin our day or to have us, you know, Break a toenail or something like that or break an arm or whatever it might be. Satan has one goal for every man, woman, and child, and that is to get them to end up dying and heading into eternity separated from Christ. And so he uses all of these methods, and uh, during the kingdom age, he will be bound. It will be a time of unparalleled uh, spiritual clarity, uh, something that man hasn't known uh, since the Garden of Eden, and He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces at kingdom age isn 't going to be a crying place it 's going to be a happy place sounds like i 'm introducing a ride at disneyland doesn 't it Which ride is that by the way so uh, it 's going to be a time of joy and Uh, Death is going to be swallowed up for the most part. It will be very unusual, very rare for death to occur during that thousand-year reign. People will live for the entire length of the thousand-year reign of Christ. He will t- um, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it shall be in that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for it. Shall be said in that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Well, we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So. There will be this return of joy and rejoicing to his people on the earth. The earth is not a uh, happy place uh, for Christians in literally most of the world today. It's a difficult place. There's tremendous, deep, uh, ruthless, demonic uh, persecution against Christians. This is a tough place for Christians to be alive. In um, most of the world, we're just starting to feel a little bit of of persecution in this country and it's not so much physical yet but that we're we're an exception for the body of Christ in the world in the United States of America because of our heritage and we thank the Lord for that heritage but there will be this tremendous joy that will uh, instead of Christians being the ones who are getting pushed around and the environment being one that is hostile toward them and assault upon their joy the kingdom age will be one that is just pure, uninterrupted joy uh, for uh, uh, his people. For on this mountain, the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab shall be trampled under him, as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. And so God is going to judge all of his enemies. Isaiah uses Moab here as a picture of all of God's enemies in the world. And, And so in the kingdom age, all of uh, God's enemies are going to be completely subdued, which means our enemies are going to be completely subdued. Moab shall be trampled down under him as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. In other words, completely Uh, subdued and he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim and he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands the fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down lay low and bring to uh, bring to the ground down to the dust and so imagine this kingdom age no more wickedness no more Rebellion against God, plenty of food and nourishment and, and religious and spiritual vitality. No more death and no more of man's pride or persecution against the righteous. A beautiful description. And sometimes, you know, we have to put ourselves in the shoes uh, as we read the Bible, in the shoes of the Christian in Somalia, the Christian in Sudan, Uh, the Christian in China, the Christian in Vietnam, and uh, ask ourselves, well, you know, the Bible wasn't just written for Christians in the United States of America. It was written for us, but we're not the only uh, kind of Christian in the world. And so when they read about a new age and a new day where these kind of things are going to mark the earth rather than what is their daily portion, these are very exciting chapters Indeed, He continues now the description of the kingdom age in uh, chapter 26 because we notice the words here. In that day, it's the same. uh, uh, It'll be the same in verse 27, the description again of that kingdom age. And so in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. And so there'll be praise being offered up to the Lord uh, for Jesus because he is reigning in Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem will be a, uh, a safe city, a strong city, for the simple reason that Jesus will be there and he will reign from there. Jesus' presence anywhere makes that place a strong place. That's why when Jesus gave the Great Commission and he spoke to us, a promise to us as Christians, he said, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The writer of the book of Hebrews says uh, concerning the promise of the Lord that he will never leave us and never forsake us. It's intended to make us realize that, hey, for something to happen to me, It has to happen to God. I'm as strong as the God who's inside of me. We don't have a religion where God is out there and we are here. God has come inside of our lives. His reputation is bound up in us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're indwelt by God. All of this is intended to infuse great confidence in our heart related to how strong we are, not in and of ourselves, but because we've become the habitation of God. What is true of the city of Jerusalem during the thousand-year reign of Christ is already true of us as Christians. Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth, may enter in. In other words, Jerusalem is going to be the home of the righteous. It's not the home of the righteous today. Some are righteous there, and a lot of them aren't righteous there. But in that day, Jerusalem is going to be the place where if we look at it and say, that's home, I mean, we feel comfortable there. That city's run the way uh, that uh, the righteous person would want it. And again, indeed, the whole world will be in that condition. And then the kingdom age will be one in which the child of God will know perfect peace. And you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And uh, very beautiful in the Hebrew, uh, you will keep him in perfect peace. The word, the perfect peace in the Hebrew is you will keep him in shalom, shalom peace peace and the repetition of the hebrew word shalom has the idea of complete or perfection and uh, so that perfect peace that is uh, going to occur in the life of the child of god there'll be no distraction whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you so there's a lot of different ways this is just a fabulous one of the greatest verses in the bible on peace and I'm going to look at it from maybe just a little bit of a different angle tonight. I mean, it will teach a lot of different wonderful ways. But you will keep him in the context of the great tribulation. It has tremendous application today, but that's not my purpose tonight. You will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And in that, tribula- in, in that kingdom age, that thousand-year reign of Christ, our minds will be stayed on on him and we will trust in him and we will know a perfect peace, not just outwardly, but inwardly. There will be no wickedness or ungodliness in the world to distract us from focusing upon the Lord all of the time and upon the things of God. It will be Virtually effortless to keep our minds stayed upon Him and to trust in Him. There'll be no Hollywood as we know it today. Uh, there will be no violent or sexually explicit um, music. All of that kind of stuff, all the things that we have to uh, fight against on a daily basis to keep our minds stayed upon the Lord and trusting in Him, including the spiritual warfare, it's going to be gone. It's going to be an environment that nurtures faith, that makes it readily easy to keep our minds upon him. It's going to be a wonderful age. If we could stop just on an individual person, just one Christian, it would be fascinating to do it. Take one from every continent or one from every nation in the world and be able to do like they do scientifically with who knows what, but just put them right over here and then somehow be able to study them, the Holy Spirit would have to do, and, and study this person and say, in this part of the world, as a Christian, this is how much effort they have to exert on a daily basis to keep their mind stayed on him and to trust in him. I think we might be shocked at the amount of physical energy, spiritual energy, emotional energy, mental energy that's required to do that today. And then one day it won't be required at all. Because there'll be no resistance to that in uh, the kingdom age. So there won't be any R-rated movies. Is there going to be any of this other kind of stuff? That may bum somebody out. I don't know. But. It's going to be all pure, it's all going to be wonderful, and we're going to enjoy perfect peace as a result of it. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. For He brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays it low, He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust, To tread, the foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy and so all pride and all oppression uh, that goes on all around the world the abuse of power again you know we think we're getting a little taste of the abuse of power and we certainly are in this country right now but nothing like living as a christian under a dictatorship or under some kind of um you know person where they've done some coup and some guy has, you know, taken the whole thing over and it's just pure oppression upon uh, everyone and against Christians especially. And so all of that pride, all power... Uh, abuse of power, all oppression, all of it's going to have no place during the kingdom age and in fact as he speaks here, of uh, the foot shall tread it down and not just any foot but the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. In other words, the meek and the humble, meekness and humility is going to be what's exalted and rewarded in that kingdom age. No more reward for pride or oppression or violence. If we were to be able to take and spend a minute or two upon each one of these issues and talk about Um, the manifestation of oppression and war and violence of leaders against their own native populations and to just think about the fact that, you know, that is going to be completely lifted off. There'll be no expression of it. It won't happen. It won't even exist in one part of the world. And to think on that level alone how wonderful the world is uh, going to uh, become. Verse 7, the way of the just is upright. O oh, most upright, you weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O oh Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. With my soul, I've desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early for when your judgments are on the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. So in the kingdom age, only righteous living is going to be uh, rewarded. Only righteous living is going to be tolerated. And wickedness and unrighteousness will be very, very uh, swiftly and completely judged. And so he tells us here that the inhabitants of the earth are going to learn and practice righteousness. All that we will ever learn in the schools, in the this, and the whatever kind of thing is coming in, all we will ever learn during that age is righteousness experientially. Just righteousness, nothing of wickedness and uh, nothing of idolatry or of sin. You think about wickedness, in contrast to righteousness, wickedness is a very uh, large realm. It is a very, very deep subject. Uh, It is a deep reality. And there are entire industries within our world and individuals in our world who spend their whole life experiencing wickedness. And there are so many layers to wickedness that they could spend their lifetime and ten lifetimes exploring it and never exhaust it. That's how inexhaustible, virtually inexhaustible a subject or reality that wickedness is. And yet on the other side of the spectrum, righteousness is even vaster and deeper and greater than wickedness. And we're going to spend a thousand years on this earth, the world will. We'll be ruling and reigning with Christ as New Testament saints. And in that kingdom age, it will just be a thousand year exploration of virtue and holiness in goodness, layer upon layer upon layer. Sometimes I wonder, because of the fallenness of the world and the greatness of the warfare around us and 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 how wickedness permeates the world around us. I wonder sometimes how deep we really go into holiness, into virtue, into this kind of beauty and know it experientially. Are we on layer 5 of 10,000 layers? Are we on layer 10 of 1,000 layers? I don't know. But in that kingdom age, it's going to be where somebody can look and say, well, I don't know if I can't have a, you know, a mature-rated video game. I don't know if I'm going to fit in in the kingdom age. Well, maybe you won't. But in the minds of people, sometimes they think, if I didn't engage in, in the exploration of wickedness or darkness, even as a Christian in this world, what would I do with my time? And there's a failure to understand that righteousness and holiness and uprightness is an even greater subject, even more beautiful, vaster. And we will spend the kingdom age exploring all of that. And, uh, uh, and um, let's see. I'm not in chapter 25 anymore, am I? Here we are. Okay, I've got, I'm back here. Excuse me. Let, the grace be shown, let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he'll deal unjustly. Even in a perfect world, there's going to be those that are just stubbornly wicked. And yet God says here he's going to root even the most stubbornly wicked people out of the earth. In the land, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly, and he will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. And so everyone who tries to resist this righteousness, resist what God is, Christ is doing. The world that He wants, they will be exposed and they will be defeated. There will be no effective resistance to goodness during that age. And so, all of the drug lords, or all of the dictators, or all of the uh, you know uh, two-bit uh, gangbangers, or leaders of gangs, or whatever you want to think about in terms of entrenched kind of of. Of stuff that's entrenched in our world, none of that will be allowed not only not to prosper, but even to exist. And then in chapter 12, the Lord is going to experience, he's going to establish peace. And he talks specifically about Israel here because of the focus upon Israel during the kingdom age since Jesus will be ruling in Jerusalem. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. O oh, Lord our God, Uh, masters beside you have had dominion over us. But by you only we make mention of your name. They are dead. They will not live. They are deceased. They will not rise. Therefore, you have punished them and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. You have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You have glorified. You have expanded the borders of of the land. And so Israel is finally going to know peace during the kingdom age. They will not know peace until then. So if you think some president or some European leader or some whoever is going to come along and bring peace to Israel in the Middle East, it's not going to happen. It is going to happen when the Prince of Peace, Jesus himself, uh, returns at his second coming and establishes peace in that land. And so Uh, He goes on here in verse 16 to talk about how uh, the history that Israel has had in putting their hopes and people and and someone other than Messiah, other than Jesus, uh, to bring peace into the land and how disappointed they were with those expectations or by putting their faith in someone else. Verse 16, "'Lord, in trouble they have visited you. "'They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them.'" As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs when she draws near the time of her delivery. And so we have been in your sight, O oh Lord. We've been with child. We've been in pain. We have, uh, we have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the uh, of. The world fallen. And so here they, uh, the hopes that they've put, their past hopes, and Others to bring peace. It only brought disappointment. And that disappointment is very vividly (laughs) described here. It is likened to a woman who has gone into the delivery room expecting to give birth to a child. And instead she only brought forth wind. In other words, it produced nothing. They put these huge hopes that trusting in this nation or in this person, it's finally going to give birth to peace for us. And it ends up producing nothing And the idea is that Jesus won't leave them uh, disappointed because he will bring the peace that they're longing uh, for. Verse 19, your dead shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Uh, wake and sing you who dwell in dust for your dew is like the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead and so here is uh, the promise that isaiah makes to those that have died in his age you know in his period and he makes the promise that the righteous dead will one day be bodily resurrected uh, and when they are bodily resurrected Uh, They will come into a new world that is very, very different from the one that they left at the time of their death. And speaking about here the glory of of this new age in human history. Come, my people, uh, verse 20, "Uh, enter into your chambers and shut your doors behind you. So here's an invitation Isaiah makes to God's people. On behalf of God, enter into your chambers, shut your doors behind you, hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. Referring to uh, probably to the great tribulation. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. And so here is this. Um, a promise that is made again by Isaiah on behalf of the Lord that this kingdom age is going to be preceded by a period of severe judgment upon the earth. Again, uh, God's people here are called to enter into this place of safety until that season of judgment is passed. And it probably. Uh, applies to one of two scenarios and we don't really know which one it might be. It could be referring to God taking his people out of the world prior to the great tribulation period. The context here is the kingdom age. So before the kingdom age is birthed, there will be the seven-year tribulation period and God is going to, by virtue of the rapture, remove his people while he pours out his indignation. It could also refer to those Jews who flee Jerusalem and from the Antichrist at the halfway mark of of the tribulation period uh, and the Antichrist... Uh, Then uh, when the Jews realize that the Antichrist is not the Messiah, at the abomination which causes desolation, that they will then uh, run away and flee away from uh, the Antichrist. God, we're told in the book of Revelation, will divinely, supernaturally, miraculously intervene. The Antichrist will send an army out to destroy the Jews for whom the light has gone on. God will protect them. They will make their way uh, into that area of Petra in modern-day Jordan and then be protected by the Lord uh, during the remainder, the final three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. John speaks of this uh, event in Revelation chapter 12, and he writes, And then the woman fled into the wilderness, and the woman represents the Jews. Uh, uh, who have given birth to the Messiah where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her uh, their 1,260 days which equals three and a half years and while this judgment is poured out by God upon the earth uh, for the shedding of innocent blood. And so it may refer to the rapture, may refer to a divine protection of the Jews. We don't really know which and... Um, But beautiful passage, if you want to look at it as a rapture passage or whatever. I mean, it's God's ability to protect us, and we are, again, not um, appointed unto wrath. Chapter 27, the description of the kingdom age continues here. We see those words again. In that day, the Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, uh, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twig twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. And so God is, uh, speaks about the fact that God is going to uh, judge his enemies, the Leviathan. Uh, nobody really knows what animal, ancient animals being referred to. It's spoken of in the book of Job a little bit. Some people speculate that it might be a crocodile, something like that, something that you don't want to be in a body of water with alone as a human being. And a, a crocodile fits that uh, for me pretty well. So some kind of a, this great beast. And the idea here is that God's going to judge all of his enemies. And uh, the biggest and the baddest of the sea creatures, uh, he's going to judge. And, and the idea is that there isn't any kind of a, any enemy that he can't readily uh, wipe out. And I'm inclined to believe that Isaiah is referring prophetically of Jesus' defeat of the Antichrist and the false prophet and and as a result the devil himself um, at at the uh, battle of Armageddon at his second coming. Again, as he's making his way to the Mount of Olives, to Jerusalem, to then establish the thousand-year reign of Christ, and we read in Revelation chapter 19 about this great battle that is going to occur there—the uh, Battle of Armageddon—and uh, I'll skip down into uh, well into the passage, and where John describes and says, "And the rest were killed with the sword which was pre- which proceeded from the mouth of Him that is Jesus, who sat on the horse at His second coming, and the birds were filled with their flesh. And then I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old. So we see the language, don't we? Who is the devil and Satan? And this angel bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, set a seal on him so that he should... Uh, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And so there'll be this defeat of his enemies, and I think very specifically this blow that will occur to the devil himself uh, immediately prior to the kingdom age. And in that day, uh, uh, sing to her... A vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it day and night. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me. And he will make peace and he shall make peace with me. And so here the Lord is declaring that he's going to watch over his people, uh, even during the times that he's judging them and chastening them. God speaks of this all the way down through uh, verse 11 of this chapter. And so that vineyard that's spoken of there in in, uh, uh, verse 2, that's a reference to Israel from uh, chapter 5. And so God is going to keep the Jewish people. Yes, they had enemies come against them. The Assyrians come against them. The Babylonians come against them. The Antichrist coming against them greatly and specifically uh, during the tribulation period. And yet why do the Jews continue to exist? Why does Israel exist as a nation? It is because though God has allowed different nations to uh, judge the Jews for their idolatry, uh, for their waywardness, for their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. He has never given up on them. And so, yes, he chastens them, but he holds the line and only allows it to go so far and does not allow them to cease to exist as a people uh, or his promises to them related uh, to the land. And so, uh, God is is the one that is protecting uh, the Jewish people. Verse six, he declares that they're going to blossom and bloom once again. Those who come, uh, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and uh, bud, and uh, fill the face of the whole world with fruit. He has struck. Has he struck Israel? Has he struck those who struck him? Or has he? Uh, been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him. In other words, God never allowed the Jews to be more more greatly hurt or damaged by their enemies than the judgment that God ultimately brings against the enemies uh, of the Jewish people. And therefore, by this, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. And this is the fruit of taking away his sin When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. And so the idea is is that God allowed judgment to come upon Israel, upon the Jewish people in order to chasten them uh, related to their idolatry, to cure them of their idolatry, and that Uh, same chastening will be allowed in the uh, actions of the Antichrist during the tribulation period. And yet there is a purpose behind all of it to get them to come to the end of their idolatry, to turn to God, to recognize Christ as their Messiah. Verse 10, yet the fortified city will be desolate. And the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its boughs are withered, they will be broken off. The women will come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. And so, uh, during uh, the, the speaking here of the Jewish ex- exile on the, the hands of the Babylonians. Uh, they're going, uh, Jerusalem is going to appear, Israel is going to appear uh, comparatively forsaken, but God isn't through with them yet. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered One by one, O you children of Israel, and so it shall be in that day, the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord and the holy mount at Jerusalem. And so in that kingdom age, God will bring the Jews and really all worshipers of him, and bring them out of all of the different parts of the world in order to come and worship him there in Jerusalem. We come into chapter 28, and we're back. uh, We move away from the thousand-year reign of Christ. We're back into the local conditions of Isaiah's time, and and God pronounces a, a woe upon both Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and Judah. Both of them are about to be invaded by Assyria, And instead of drawing closer to God as a result of this threat, the uh, northern kingdom of Israel, they gave themselves to drunkenness. And the southern kingdom of Judah, instead of turning to God and repenting of their sin and making God the source of security in their life, they turned to Egypt to make a covenant or a treaty with them uh, against the threat of Assyria so that if Assyria invaded either Uh, uh, Judah or uh, Egypt that they would come to one another's defense and so this was how they were dealing with uh, the problems that they were facing in their time rather than turning from their sin and turning to God and then allowing God to bless them in the way uh, that they want he wants to and so he rebukes them both for the decision that they're that they're making here and so he begins by his uh, woe upon the northern kingdom of israel and specifically their leaders woe to the crown of pride so here you are in the northern kingdom of israel the syria is threatening and yet uh they're proud and we're going to see in just a moment here what the source of their pride was um, their land was still for all the trouble that was going on around them their land was uh that northern section of Israel is a beautiful part of Israel. Um, if you ever do a tour of Israel, I mean, it is so productive. The, um, the grain, the orchards, what the forests, it's just... Um, fabulous to see and this was their land and they looked and they still had plenty of food that they were raising and there was everything was going good and here they are so prosperous they had so much money um, the orchards were still full of food and grain and all of this and so how could a, a group of people who have are this wealthy and, and, and are this well situated in the world you know in terms of uh, geographically what in the world would could we be afraid of? And so their prosperity uh, caused them to become very, very proud. And they wore their pride like a crown. I mean, they're very, very open about it. Woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim. Ephraim was uh, probably the most significant of the tribes that made up the northern kingdom of Israel. So that kingdom is referred to by that tribe Ephraim here, but he's talking about Israel whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. God looks at them and says, you guys think you are, wow, you have so much and it's so great and and everything. And they couldn't see that uh, the hint of decay was already upon their land. They were already beginning the descent. They'd already reached their highest point is a nation at this point and they were going to begin to go down but he saw it before they did and warned them about it and so he said their glorious beauty, their, their, the cause of their pride um, that it's now a fading flower which is at the head of the verdant valleys to those who are overcome with wine and so he uh, rebukes them and he rebukes the leaders of the nation because uh, of their drinking and, uh, and and it appears that this drunkenness was a part of their um pride and because of their prosperity they had these beautiful cities and they were rich and they had all of this rich farmland and all of this kind of thing so we're secure what could happen to a people like us you know and sometimes you ever do that you know as a citizen of the United States of America and you look and you say well you know I mean the whole world's kind of squirrely and it's a little bit goofy and all but we still got the best military in the world and I mean nobody could come in and what and so we factor all these things in in the light of other men and other nations and we forget that God is involved in human history and if God wants to and I'm not saying God wants to take the United States down a notch or two but if God wants to take a country down a notch or two it doesn't matter what they have. They're going to go down a notch or two. And so this was their arrogance. They thought, wow, we look at looking at things just in the natural. Nobody could do anything to us. I mean, look at our situation and all. And they don't realize that who they're dealing with is not of the nations. They're dealing with God. God's had enough, and he's going to judge them. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, speaking of Assyria. And he's going to come like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing. Who will bring them down to the earth with his hand? The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. So much for the arrogance and the pride and nothing could happen to us. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower which is the head of the verdant valley like the first fruit before the summer which an observer sees. He eats it up while it's still in his hand. And so Assyria would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel as easy as you go up in the early summer to a fig tree and pull a little fig off and pop it in your mouth if you like figs. I like my figs in the form of fig newtons. Lots of sugar and a little crust around them. But it was going to be effortless uh, for uh, all of this to happen when it came. And God warned them that he was going to bring that judgment upon them. And then God, in verse, uh, he goes on in verse 5 and says, In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. And so, this day when all of this judgment is poured out, uh, out here upon uh, Jerusalem and all, and there 's going to be this uh, judgment being humbling here of uh, of uh, of the northern uh, kingdom of, of Israel, uh, for some of the people that were in Israel, God would be the one that they would glory, and they 'd glory in his uh, beauty, but it would take this uh, savage humbling before the nation would you ever wonder. Where I think that um, where you, when you become a, um, a part of a minority um, in the United States of America in terms of, um, not for me at least, in terms of race. So a minority status is a new thing uh, for a person like me to get used to in the United States of America. It's not a new thing for a lot of other kinds of people in the United States but to be a christian and a hunger for righteousness and for rightness and law and order within a nation for things to be done god's way and for uh, holiness to mark a nation and god's definitions of right and wrong to mark a nation i realize i am in a minority in this country at the moment and that minority is dwindling And sometimes when we look back at history, we say, yes, the Roman Empire was overthrown and all Romans were these debauched, People who drank themselves to death and feasted to death, and they had all of these orgies and all of this, and uh, the whole thing was rotten from head to toe, and not realizing that that might have characterized the majority of the population at the end of the Roman Empire when it was ultimately overthrown, and it did rot from the inside out. But in every nation, just like in our nation, if it continues its slide, there is still a population of the righteous who are not represented usually in history who then mourn over the direction. They see what's coming. They see what's happening. And yet they're powerless to change that. And so here is that same thing, that judgment coming upon the northern kingdom of Israel. But there was that remnant who saw uh, that this was unnecessary. They saw what was going on. And yet... Because they did see clearly spiritually, they, were, uh, they could look at it and, and, uh, and their joy was in this whole um, uh, God's glory, his beauty. Yes, this is a horrible season for our nation to be in, but it's a necessary season in order for our nation to turn back to God. And so that's what that remnant was feeling and all of that. And uh, sometimes we can feel that ourselves here today even. But they have, in verse 7, he begins now his woe upon Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah, specifically Jerusalem. And he begins by pronouncing a woe upon the drunkenness of her leaders. But they also have erred. So that also refers to Judah in addition to Israel in the north. But they also have erred, and how they erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of the way the priest and the prophet have aired through intoxicating drink wow that's kind of a bummer isn't it you say well it's politicians you know but i mean by the time the priests and the prophets are getting as drunk as everybody else in the culture that's a bad thing i mean the standard has really really dropped and that's what had happened In the city of Jerusalem, they are swallowed up by wine, and they are out of the way. So they were swallowing the wine, but there's something about wine that ends up swallowing you. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment, for all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. And so here you have this drunkenness that permeates not only... The political levels of Judah, but also her religious establishment as well. In verse um, 7, at the very last sentence of it, here you have the two uh, greatest dangers associated with drinking outside of the physical dangers. And that is they err in vision, they stumble in judgment, and so they err in vision, it always imparts vision, it always uh, or it always impairs vision, it always impairs judgment, and then he says they stumble in judgment, it always results in bad decision making and so the other end of the spectrum is what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess or a wasting or a debauchery or vomit on the tables, as Isaiah puts it here. But be being filled with the Holy Spirit. What a terrible thing when the religious leaders of the land would rather be drunk on wine than filled with the Holy Spirit. It tells me they never know what it was like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Once a person's been filled with the Holy Spirit, knows what that feels like in their life, who's going to get drunk and be removed from that influence? Nobody in their right mind would do it. And so here they are, and Paul says, listen, far greater for the child of God, for any Christian, not just the priests and the prophets or pastors or elders or deacons in a church, being filled with the Holy Spirit is the greatest experience that a person can have. Far greater than getting drunk and with wine and coming under the influence of wine, and and so here they cash the one in for the other. It's just like uh, absolutely crazy and. As a result, their judgment was poor. And you think about how many bad decisions have been made under the influence of alcohol. But who has ever made a bad decision under the influence of the Holy Spirit? And I think you have to be careful here today where there's this reintroducing in a strong way of alcohol into Christian culture in the United States of America. And no one could deny the liberty of a Christian to drink some alcohol and, 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 and nobody could deny that there's a biblical base for that. But no one is ever to cross not one sip or one ounce beyond being under the control of the Holy Spirit and then coming under the control of that alcohol. That's the line that no Christian is to pass. And we're wise to be very, very careful about that. Uh, in this day and I think especially with uh, younger Christians today no one has ever regretted what they've done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and uh, on a daily basis tomorrow morning how many millions and millions of people in the world will wake up tomorrow morning regretting what happened just the night before under the influence of alcohol and so Look at the life that it leads into. Their tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. And yet, you know what is fascinating? I laugh because it's crazy. It, it, sometimes you have to laugh because it, what the Bible describes is so real. It just You almost couldn't believe it except you read it in the Bible and except it's a part of our daily portion. So here are these priests and these prophets who are getting drunk and they're vomiting upon one another. And then in verse 9, Isaiah then summarizes their reaction to his message to them. The warning of the coming judgment. And so here he describes the reaction that they have of the priests and the prophets uh, to his message. And most specifically, number one, to the message. And number two, to the style of his delivery And so this is how they were mocking Isaiah. Isaiah comes out and he delivers a message from God. And here's what they said. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned with milk? Those just drawn from the breasts, little babies? And so he, he delivers this message. He talks to us. He talks to us like we're little babies and little children. And so they mocked the message and then they mocked his style of delivering it. They said, for precept must be upon precept and precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And so they just said he keeps saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over, and over again. So he's saying these simple things that everyone knows about God, but they weren't obeying it. And he keeps saying it over and over and over again like we didn't hear him. There's a story about this young uh, preacher, pastor, who had candidated to become a pastor of a church. And they uh, hired him to become the pastor of the church. And on his first Sunday, he taught this message. Woo! One of those days, it was just fabulous. Everybody just was pinching themselves. Can't believe we landed this young guy to become our next pastor, the handling of the word, and fabulous. He couldn't wait for the next Sunday. Next Sunday, he got in the pulpit. He preached the very same message. Well, you know, still a good message. Not as good as the first time, but still a good message and still a good pastor. Pastor. The third Sunday, he comes in and he preaches the same message again. Now they're a little troubled because they don't know whether he knows another message or not. And so the elders and the deacons and the board, they approach him and they ask him if he knows any other message. And when's he going to stop preaching that one and preach a new one? He says, I'll preach a new one when you obey this one. Now, I don't advise that attitude necessarily. You notice I always move on to the next thing every Sunday. It would be a bad sign if I repeat a message to you, get a poke in the eye, but I've never gotten that sense related to this congregation. I'd do it if the Lord ever told me to do anything, I would do it. That's a bit like what Isaiah is doing here. God didn't want Isaiah speaking a bunch of messages that would confuse them when all he wanted to do to say to them was one thing, repent of your sin because it's taking you into judgment. And why complicate that with another message? And so he kept repeating it over and over. And over again, and the value of repetition in all of this. And then here is God's response to their mocking of his servant and the message. He said, For with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people, that is God will, to whom he, has, uh, to whom he said, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear, but the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, uh, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that uh, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. And so God says, you don't like my voice, you don't like my message, you think I'm talking like... A teacher to a bunch of kindergartners, you don't like how simple my message is he said all right I'll give you another voice to listen to I'll allow the Assyrians to invade this land and then you'll hear their voice in your cities and on your streets and then tell me how you like the message that they're going to speak to you as opposed to the one that I spoke to you and God was saying in essence when you hear, because of your failure to repent of your sin, when you hear the Assyrian tongue uh, filling your land, it will be a sign of my judgment upon uh, your, your land for rejecting my voice. The interesting thing is, is that Paul quotes this, verse 11, in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when he talks about the gift of tongues. And the gift of tongues, or he, he uses this passage, for with stammering lips and another tongue he will speak to this people. And in the same way, the Assyrian language being spoken uh, in the area of Jerusalem and in Judah was a message to them of God's judgment upon their land for their rejection of him. The gift of tongues that was manifest through the church on the day of Pentecost was an expression of God's judgment upon the Jewish religious system at the time that had rejected his son as the Messiah and God and Paul was saying the fact that you are listening to these unknown tongues on the day of Pentecost is a witness of God's rejection and judgment upon what you have made Judaism into and that is something that can cause people to not only miss their Messiah but reject their Messiah and that's the root of that passage and of what is a very interesting and confusing passage for many people in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And then God declares, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us for we have made uh, lies our refuge, and under falsehood, we have hidden ourselves. And so they said, no, we don't have to listen to God. We don't have to worry about Assyria. We have a contract, a covenant with, Israel, with Egypt. God says it is a lie that is going to end up, uh, because you're going to believe in it, is going to end up with a lot of people dead and ending up in Sheol, or that is, into eternity. And then in contrast to all of that, the Lord speaks of his Messiah, as we saw this morning. Therefore, the Lord says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. And so the Lord uh, declares here uh, concerning... Um, Hold that thought right there. Because I don't want to do my whole sermon this morning all over again. You don't want me to do that either. As the Lord speaks here of the coming Messiah and how the coming of Messiah is going to provide uh, the Jews, provide the whole world with a tried and sure foundation for our lives and a tried and a sure salvation. And so he is a precious cornerstone. is a foundation in our lives and as we make him our foundation and as we make him our cornerstone that is our uh, savior and our lord then we can live confident that whatever storm comes into the world or into our life that um, we can live free of the anxiety that the rest of the world is experiencing also I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled. Your agreement with Sheol will not stand. Egypt is not going to be able to protect you. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it, Assyria. As often as it goes out, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass over. And by day and by night, it will be a terror Just to understand the report. For as the bed is too short to stretch out on, whoever who how many of you have slept on such a bed? It's too short to stretch out on? You know what the worst is? Is to be on a bed that's too short to stretch out on and it's got a footboard. (laughs) At least you can kinda dangle on the other. That footboard, oh I've had some of well, enough of my problems, you understand. For the bed is too short to stretch on. And then the covering, the blanket, so narrow that you can't get it wrapped around yourself. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Parisim, and he will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. And now, therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong, for I have heard from the Lord, God of hosts, a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. And so they're trusting in this contract or this covenant treaty with Egypt. And God said it's going to be like trying to sleep on a bed that is too short with a blanket that you can't get around you on a cold night. How many of you have had a night's sleep like that? Tried How much rest did you get on that bed with that little tiny blanket? You didn't get any rest it's a very poetic way in which God is saying, you think that Egypt is going to give you rest and give you peace, but is going to be as uns- unsuccessful as that bed and that little tiny blanket uh, was when you were trying to get in a good night's sleep. Give ear, he says, to my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the seed in rows and the, bar, the barley in the appointed place and the spelt in its place? For he instructs him, the farmer, in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick. And the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground. And therefore, he does not thresh it forever. Break it with his cartwheel or crush it with his uh, horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. In other words, God is using a farming illustration here to speak to the land. And the farmer prospers. Farmer doesn't have to be the smartest person in the whole world. They might be, but they don't have to be. All they have to do is understand God's laws and cooperate with God, and they're going to be successful. And so God was saying, Look at how the farmers prosper by simply being, cooperating with me, And the only time they don't prosper is when they then try and go against how I have created things to operate and to function. And so he was basically telling the nation of Israel, that's what's true of a farmer. You're only going to prosper as you cooperate with God. It's true of a king, of a priest, of a prophet, of everyone. But they were unwilling to do so. And so the woes continue in chapter 29, uh, a week from this coming sunday let's stand together the worship